Everyone, welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you are here with us this morning um, as we are getting ready uh, to continue on um, our series uh, with It Starts Here. And so if you are new with us or maybe you haven't been with us throughout the series, um, I want to give a quick couple minute recap of where we've been so that you know where we are and where we'll be going. And so this whole idea is if you are in this room, chances are, maybe I can't guarantee this, but chances are if you're in this room, whether you've known the Lord for a really long time and you are uh, here because this is your habit and this is just what you do on a Sunday morning, or maybe you're someone who kind of grew up in the faith, but has walked away and is still trying to figure out if they want to navigate your way back into um, coming to church in relationship with God because of hurts and habits and pains. Uh, so trying to figure out if you want to do that or whether you're someone who is brand new, uh, has barely been to church if ever, and you're not even sure who Jesus is or what God is about. Um, wherever you are, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And wherever you are on that spectrum, chances are is that you're you're here because we want to know the answer to the question of how do we get into a deeper relationship with Jesus? That's a question we can ask whether we've known the Lord for years or whether we're brand new and trying to figure things out. It's how do I get to know Jesus better? How do I get to have a deeper relationship with him? And so we talked about this idea that our It Starts Here series is the idea that in order to have that deeper relationship with him, so much of that is foundational with our idea of worship and what worship is, what it isn't, and how that impacts our lives. So when we want to get a deeper relationship with God, it starts here with our understanding of worship. Now the first week, this is week three, week one, we started, we're asking these questions, who, what, where, when, why, and how, and I only have five fingers, so I only did five numbers, uh, but we have these six questions we're asking throughout the series, and the first one was who, and our point for the first series, of, or the first sermon in the series, is this idea that everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. That some people, maybe we say we don't worship stuff, but when we look at the definition of worship, it means to ascribe or give worth to. So we all give worth to something in our lives. And we looked at the story of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, recognizing that we're either going to give God the glory and worship God, the one and true God, or we might fall into worshiping idols or things that we think will fulfill us when only God truly can. So everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. And then last week we asked him the question, what is worship? And we talked about this idea that worship, we often think, if you, especially if you grow up in the church, worship is the idea of singing songs. That is part of it. But we talked about last week that worship is more than just lifting up our voices. That's part of it. it but it's more than just lifting up our voices. It's laying down our lives and recognizing that we looked at uh, just the story of Hebrews 9 and sacrifices and the fact that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sin. So now we worship Jesus who, knowing that, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, but was raised to new life. And his blood that was shed out was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, for yours and for mine. And so in order to be like Jesus, to be Christian, which means little Christ, we too, like Jesus, can lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. And we lay down our lives and recognize that worship is more than just what we sing or which songs we like or the style of worship, because far be it from us to limit God's praises based on our preferences. But instead, we lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to Jesus and to God because of what Jesus and how he laid down his life for us. So that's the who, that's the what. And today we're going to talk about the why, why we worship. And so before we answer that question, I would ask that you would join me in a word of prayer as we go before God. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord, for your, all that you've done in our lives, for your love for us, and for this opportunity for us to dive into your word as we wrestle with the question of why is it that we worship? So Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in an incredible way to each and every person in this room because each and every person in this room is loved by you, formed by you, and you want a deeper relationship with them. So may we recognize that that deeper relationship starts here with our understanding of worship. So Lord, we give this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, last week I mentioned kind of my misunderstanding of what worship was when I first started uh, attending church. And so maybe for some of you, uh, you're new to church, and so you, you see people uh, standing, you see people singing, uh, you see people clapping, and if you're like me, uh, you see people clapping slightly offbeat, um, and you just wonder, like, what is this about? Like, why is it that we are worshiping? And, and I remember, grow, like, when I was going to service and I would attend with Steph um, in high school, and so I'd be like, you know, why, why, do, why are we singing? Why, why is it that we stand up? Why do we sit down? Why do we kneel? Why do people uh, clap? All these questions that I had, because as a newcomer, it was very different to me. It was just a different understanding, and I didn't quite fully get it. And so maybe you are new to church, and so you might have similar questions, or maybe you've been to church for a while, but maybe you can think back upon that time when you walked into a service, whether it was at a youth group when you were growing up or a children's ministry or whether it was on a Sunday morning and you just thought, okay, this is, this is different. What, what is going on? Why do we stand? Why do we sing? Why do we clap? Why do we raise our hands? What is all this about? And so we try to understand these answers and I misunderstood it. I wasn't quite sure. I thought that singing was based on, or worship was based on the songs that I liked. And that was something that I mentioned last week is the exact wrong way to look at it because far be it from me to shortchange God's praises based on my preferences. But instead, we recognize that why is it that we worship? Why is it? It's not just to stand, not just to sing, not just to clap. Those are vehicles through which we worship, but it's not the reason why we worship. Richard Foster, gives us a clue to this when he says this in the celebration of discipline. He says, we worship the Lord and not only because of, not sorry, we worship the Lord not only because of who he is, but because of what he has done. We praise God for who he is and we thank him for what he has done. And so our, our thesis, our main point, whatever you want to call our, our main thing that we're going to talk about today is, is coming from this and we add one more element to it, that why do we worship? The reason we worship God is because we have been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. We worship God because we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. And so turn to Psalm 113 with me. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 113. We're going to be looking at uh, the entire uh, Psalm there. It's nine verses. It's in page 953. If you have the church Bible, if you brought your own Bible, or if you're using the Bible app, that's awesome. Again, Psalm 113, 113. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a brief little uh, idea about this Psalm. So this Psalm is one of six Psalms, Psalm 113 through 115, that's known as the Hallel. The Hallel is this word in Hebrew that means Praise. So when we say hallelujah, what we're saying is praise the Lord. So it's hallel, praise, Yahweh, the Lord, hallelujah. So it's praise the Lord. That's what we see in the very beginning of verse 1 is praise the Lord. It's hallelujah. And so many scholars are recognized that these Psalm 113 through 118 are these psalms that would be sung through various Jewish festivals. They would be sung uh, during um, Passover and other important 
moments because it's this reminder of praising the Lord, of saying hallelujah for what he's done, who he is, and how he loves. And so many scholars believe that it was either this, one, Psalm 113 through 118, the Hallel, these six uh, passages there, those six Psalms, or the great Hallel, which is from Psalm 136, which is whenever they say, you know, something where it says, um, uh, just the idea that his love endures forever. And it says, thank you for this, his love endures forever. So it's this call and response that either of those things were what Jesus and his disciples would have been singing when we look at the Last Supper in Matthew 26. That these are, these are words that may have been upon the lips of Jesus and songs that may have been coming out of the voice of Jesus on his last night. Praise the Lord for what you've done, who you are, and how you love. And so, as we are doing that, the first point that we're going to talk about as you're filling there is that we praise God for who he is. Who he is. Those are on your notes there. And as we are writing that down, I'm going to read from Psalm 113, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord, or in Hebrew, hallelujah. Hallelujah, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now we hit this focus right off the bat in verses 1 and even verse 2 when it talks about the name of the Lord. And, and that harkens us back to Exodus 3 when Moses is speaking to God and God is speaking through the burning bush. And he says, you know, who am I to call you? Who am I going to say? This is Moses asking, who am I going to say sent me to free the people from Egypt? And God says, I am who I am, or I am who I am. That's Yahweh. That's that name there. We recognize that in uh, Romans 10, we see that how can one be saved? By calling upon the name of the Lord. We look at Acts 4.12 and recognizing that Paul talks about how no one can be saved other than by the name of Jesus Christ. That the power of the name of Jesus or the name of God is not just saying Jesus, God. There's power behind that so much so that demons and, and those may recognize who Jesus is and they hear the name of Jesus and they shudder because of the power of that. Or Jewish people, that they would not even say the name Yahweh because of how holy that name is and how unholy we are to be able to utter that name. So there's power in the name of Jesus and in the name of the Lord, and it is to be praised. But then we also recognize that in uh, verse 2, it says, let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. And, and that idea of praised is this, also this idea of blessed. So we're saying blessed be the name of the Lord. It's this idea of speaking well of God, that his name would be blessed by us speaking well of it. Or the verb can also be uh, translated as this idea of kneeling in worship. Of, of bodily recognizing our submission to we praising him and we are recognizing that we are smaller, that we are He's so far above us and so high above us and that we kneel in response. And so we look at those first two, uh, first three verses there, and then we're going to dive in to the next section when we talk about not just who he is, but in your notes, it says, why or what are the two reasons that we do that or two of the reasons? The first one is that he is transcendent, which means that he's high above us. He's transcendent, which means he's above us. And now, what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a couple moments here, and we're going to, to watch a, a short three-minute video together from Francis Chan, a pastor who, who shows us, gives us a picture, an illustration, because I would love to talk about how big the universe is. And in a moment, we're going to do that, but I want to hear you to read and to hear verses four through six before we jump to that. It says, the Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. 
Who is like our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? So picture that God is so high above creation and so high above the heavens and the earth that he has to stoop down. He has to lower himself in order to look down upon the heavens and the earth. And with that thought in mind, let's take the next couple moments and next couple minutes to turn your attentions to the screens and watch about how big and how vast creation is. So we may learn how high above us God truly is. So turn your attention to the screen as we watch this together. What, what, what you're seeing right now. First of all, this is the earth. Okay? Just, just you're taking off from the earth from Southern California and we're going we're gonna to rise up for a little bit here. Okay? We're going to pull away from it. We're going to pull higher. Now, this is at about 10 kilometers. Like, if you climb Mount Everest, this is what you'd see. You'd see the curvature of the Earth from that distance. Now, you're going to, we're going to climb up even higher. This is at 100 kilometers. And you're a fourth of the way to the space station now. This is what you'd see. If you get to this level, you're considered an astronaut. Just, if you ever get there. Okay, now, we're going 100,000 kilometers. 100,000 kilometers from the Earth, you're a fourth of the way to the moon, that's what the Earth would look like. Now we're going to pull away to a million kilometers. At a million kilometers, there's the moon. Okay? There's the moon. You can barely see the Earth. You're at a million kilometers now. You're past the, past the moon. And uh, now we're going to go to 100 million kilometers. 100 million kilometers. You're still not to the sun. The sun's 93 million miles away. But now we're going to go to 10 trillion kilometers. Ten, there's the sun. Okay. You just passed the sun. Now you would see all of the planets at 10 trillion kilometers. And now we're at 10 to the 15th power. That means 10 with 15 zeros. I don't know what that number is. 15 zeros. And the sun's just like a bright dot amidst other stars. And now we're going to 10 light years away. At 10 light years away, come on, let's go. Zoom, there you go. 10 light years away, now you just see the sun with like 11 other stars that are kind of its neighbors. You know, that, 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 that's our sun. And now we're going to go 1,000 light years away. At 1,000 light years away, you, you wouldn't even see our sun anymore. These are just a bunch of stars close to it in this cluster inside the Milky Way. Now we're going to zoom out even further and that's the Milky Way we live in. See that cluster of stars? Those are about 100,000 stars that are closest to our sun. You can't see our sun anymore at this point. Now this is our Milky Way galaxy, and forget about the Earth. Okay, there's our Milky Way galaxy that we live in. Um, and we're just buried in there somewhere. And we're going to pull out even further, and you'll see that our galaxy is actually, it's, it's a big galaxy, and... Uh, and all those other things you're seeing now are galaxies. And we're going to pull away 10 million light years now. His next scene is 10 million light years. Those are all galaxies you see. Amidst our Milky Way, several hundred galaxies. Now we're going to go 100 million light years away. This is the last one. We're going to zoom out to 100 million light years. Those are all clusters of galaxies. Galaxies and clusters of galaxies. You won't even see our Milky Way galaxy anymore amidst that. We don't have telescopes that go beyond that little sphere there. Verse 4. 
again. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look upon the heavens and the earth? You know, we see this idea of how transcendent he is, this idea that he is so high above us, that his ways are above our ways, his thoughts above our thoughts, that we may have our own plans, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails, and that the same God who at the, the sound of his voice created all the heavens and the earth is the same God who with one breath gave you and I life. That he knows each and every one of those stars and those galaxies by name, and he knows each and every person in this room by name. That we recognize that we could say God is big, but the word big isn't big enough to say how big God is. That we could say God is great. We could say that he is powerful. We could say that he's majestic. We could say all these things, but these are but finite words that we try to ascribe to an infinite God, and they fall woefully short of the grandeur and the majesty and the power of who he is, because he is so high above us that he looks down, and he has to stoop down to be able to see the heavens and the earth And he is so transcendent. He is above us in such an incredible, incredible way. And if that were the end of the story, that could be a reason to praise him for who he is. And it absolutely would be. But that is not the end of the story. Because not only is he transcendent so that he's high above us, but he's also, in your notes, imminent, which shows that he's with us. That yes, he's transcendent, which means that he's above us and high above us, but he's also imminent, which means he's with us. That we recognize that as Psalm 139, 7 through 12 talk about this idea when, when David as the psalmist is saying, Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heights, you are there. If I descend into the depths, you are there. If I try to hide myself in the darkness, you would still find me, Lord, for darkness is as light to you. That we recognize that, yes, God is imminent and he is, or sorry, he's transcendent and he's high above us to the point where trillions upon trillions of light years with billions upon billions of galaxies with an innumerable amount of stars and planets, that he is high above us and he's formed all that, but that he also knows you. He formed you inside your mother's womb, that he's not just high above us, but he is with us in the midst of our difficulty and our hurts and our habits and our hangups and our pains and our struggles. And so it's when we combine his transcendence with his imminence, his height, as well as his depths, that we are able to truly worship him for who he is, because he is Big enough that the word big isn't enough, but he's also close enough that he knows every hair upon your head, every wound upon your life, every tear that's stained your pillow, every ache that's been within your heart, and every struggle and sin that you've struggled with, that I've struggled with, and yet he loves us the same. That he's incredibly high above us, but he's incredibly intimate with us. That we worship God for who he is. And Francis Chan, after that, uh, in, one of, in his book, after we read that, it talks about this idea, and he asks this question, isn't it a comfort to worship a God that we cannot exaggerate? Isn't it a comfort, no matter how big we say he is, it's not enough that we could say. No matter how loving he, we say that he is, it's, it's not enough to encapsulate that. No matter how good he is, even when we don't understand what's going on, even when we're in the midst of our heartaches, that he's still good. And he's with us. And he never leaves us nor forsakes us because we are his children. He is our God. And we can lean into him in those times of troubles.
So we talk about who he is. We worship him because we've been changed by who he is. The next reason we talk about why we worship him is because we've been changed by what he has done. So we're going to continue on. We're going to finish off Psalm 113, verses 7 through 9, looking at this idea of what he's done. Verse 7 says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That we recognize here, the first thing on your notes is that he, what he does is that he lifts us up in times of need. He lifts us up in times of need. Now, I don't pretend to understand every time of need that you've experienced in your life or, or are currently experiencing. I can only share my story. And my story, I've shared this before with some of you, but not all of you know that, is that when I was end of junior high through high school, I was depressed and I was suicidal and, and I wanted to take my own life. That I remember very specifically a moment in which when I was in eighth grade that I was inside my room, my, my mom was working um, because she had to work and my dad was, uh, we were separated and so he was working as well. I was in the afternoon, I had the afternoons to myself. And I remember a moment in which I was in my room and I had a, a mirror on the back of the door and I was wearing this cross that I'd worn kind of growing up um, and I'd always had it, it was just this simple gold-plated cross and, and I'd always put it inside my shirt and um, I remember grabbing the butcher knife from my kitchen and kneeling in front of my door with a mirror in front of it, and holding that knife to my chest and saying, I'm, this is it, this is, this is gonna be the end. My, my parents will be gone. By the time they come home, I'll be gone. But I remember that as I was holding that knife to my chest, that I saw this little shimmer on my chest and I looked down and that cross that was, was no longer inside my shirt, it was outside my shirt, it was reflecting off the light, and it was all that it took was just a moment to be able to slow down, take a step back, and recognize that I didn't need to end my own life. But that was my example of being needy in the dust, of being in the ash heap, and being raised up and lifted up. And then I fast forward that from that moment of wanting to end my own life when I was 13, and then I fast forward that to 2011 and 2015 when my daughters were born. And I think about this fact that had I taken my life when I was 13, my daughters wouldn't be here. That had I taken my own life when I was then, Steph's amazing, she would have found another husband. <laughs> but, but my daughters, but my daughters, they wouldn't be here in the way that they were because I wouldn't be able to be there to contribute. And it reminds me of this idea of how amazing it is that God is in the business of lifting us up in our times of need. Not that we always understand our times of need, not that we always can even be happy in the midst of our times of need because that's when we're in this moment of brokenness. But it wasn't when I was 13 that I got to see that God was in the business of raising us up in our time of need. It was later on when I go from being suicidal to being a dad and recognizing how powerful it is to be called a child of God because now I get to be a father. Because I get to be a dad who loves his children so much and I get to see that made manifest in my daughters and then to recognize that that is how God sees us. How great the love of the Father is that he's lavished upon us that you may be called, we may be called children of God and that is what we are. So he lifts us up in our times of need. But not only that, we recognize that he also 
turns our tests into a testimony. He turns our tests into a testimony. And, and I wish I could say that I coined that phrase. Man, I heard that from a pastor who's smarter than me, and I loved it, though. So he turns our tests into a testimony. We see this with the idea of the barren woman who, this was the great struggle, the great test. And we see this biblically through Sarah, who wanted to have a child. We see it through Hannah, who wanted to have a child. And there was such heartache and brokenness of wanting to no longer be barren that when they were able to have you know, Isaac and then uh, Samuel, that they were able to be rejoicing God. And they say, praise the Lord. Lord, hallelujah, because the moment of testing and the moment of difficulty can now be a testimony that when they're holding their son, they'll be able to say, look and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Look at what he has done. Look at it, how he's filled me up with hope again as he takes the test into a testimony. And one of the most powerful times of singing worship, again, to, to use this idea of when we're able to worship God through song, one of the most powerful times I've had was every month at my previous church on the first Monday of the month, we would have a prayer night. And we did it on a Monday night because uh, Monday night was also when our Celebrate Recovery ministry met. So if you haven't heard of Celebrate Recovery, uh, it's from Saddleback um, in Lake Forest, California, just a little bit north of here. And their whole idea is to, to meet people with their hurts, their habits, and their hangups. And to create groups that whether it's an alcohol issue, whether it's drug, whether it's pornography, whether it's eating disorders, whatever it may be, whatever issues, hurts, habits, or hangups that, that people may have, which if we're honest, all of us have some of those, that whatever hurts, habits, or hang-ups they may have, they would find groups of people who have struggled with the same thing, and they would go through biblical curriculum in which to be able to find hope, healing, and life. And so the reason I bring you, I give you that background is that it's incredible when you walk into a room and you get around men and women and children who recognize how far they've been and how much God has done in their lives because the worship time isn't dictated by what songs they like. It isn't dictated by how bad off-key does my voice sound or how off-beat is my clapping. It doesn't get dictated by where my arms are and if I'm knocking the person next to me. It's recognized that because of what God has done in my life, I worship him because because I've been changed. And it's this powerful moment when pretense falls to the wayside and praises raises up to heaven. It's this beautiful moment when we no longer are worried about how we look or how things appear or keeping that Christian face, that church-going face that everything's okay. Because it's so easy for us when it comes to our tests to want to hold on to those, to want to put on a, a brave face and not share that or open up or, or be able to use that because we think that that's going to cause us to be in more pain or we think that people won't understand when the truth of the matter is that God uses those tests to be a light to other people. He uses those tests to be a testimony. He uses the darkest moments in our lives to be a light to other people so that they too can find the hope and the love and the life of Jesus Christ. And so, and so we see that verses 8 through 9 talk about that those moments of barrenness that test of what it was like to want to have a child so badly and not be able to, which even now still is a horrible pain that many couples experience. And they still cry out. And they still have this pain. And they still struggle. But that God can use our tests to become a testimony to who he is. And not that we always understand the timing or how it works. But because he's transcendent and we know his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts, and because we know that he's imminent and he's close to us, we know that we could trust him. As hard as it may be, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we look at, we worship God because we've been changed by who he is. 
We worship God because we've been changed by what he's done by lifting us up out of our need, by turning our test into a testimony. And then lastly, we worship God because of how he loves, of how he loves. And I'm just going to take a couple verses um, here as we look at different dimensions of his love, different aspects of his love from Psalm 113. I'm going to start in verse two, the idea that the name of the Lord would be praised both now and forevermore. This shows us that the love of God, his love is long. That this idea that this love is going to last both now and forevermore. That he is outside of time, and so he will be worshipped for all of time. That you and I will be able to sing shoulder to shoulder, not worry about how offbeat our claps are, how off-key our voices are, with people from across the world, from all generations, and we'll sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we'll be able to worship God because his love is long and everlasting for us, so we worship him with an everlasting and long time of worship and singing to him from now and forevermore. Verse 3, it talks about how from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. I initially thought when I heard that, vo- that, that verse, I'm sorry, that it's the idea again of it's a length of time. You know, from the beginning of my day to the end of my day, that that's how I worship the Lord. But when you look into the commentaries and you dive into a little bit, it's not a story of how long his love is. It's the fact that his love is wide. That no matter what time it is right now, across the earth, from the rising of the setting of the sun and everywhere in between that the name of the Lord is praised. That we recognize that as we are 11.22 a.m. on a Sunday morning on June 10th, 2018, that we are merely joining in the chorus of people who have been worshiping God from where the sun started to where the sun is setting and that there have been billions of people across the world who are worshiping the name of Jesus Christ this morning. And so we are joining our voice into that chorus, and we are playing our part in that symphony, and we are doing what we can to build his kingdom here in the San Diego County. But we recognize, we recognize that his love is wide because it is ever-reaching, that there is no people group or no tribe or tongue or nation that will not know the name of Jesus and will not be praising the name of Jesus in heaven. That's affirming, and that's convicting for us to go and reach people. But it shows that his love is wide. That from the setting, rising of the sun to the setting, his name is to be praised. The next point we see is that his love is high. We kind of hit on this a little bit earlier with how transcendent God is. That he's high above us. That he created the earth with the sound of his voice. And that he created you with, a breath of his, uh, with one breath. And that he names the stars and knows them by name. And he formed you and knows you by name. And that we recognize that his love is high. Because it goes from all of creation, all the heavens and the earth, and he stoops down and he loves us enough that although he could have just created it, and in other belief systems there's a distant God who comes and you know, creates the world and then has nothing to do with us. But the one true God is the one who is so high above us that his love is high. But then also, as verse 7 through 9 talks about, his love is deep. He hits us in the depths of our pain, the depths of our heartache, the depths of our sorrows, the hurts, habits, hangups, wounds, and pains, and difficulties that we faced. And he's not distant. He's present. He's not so high above us as to forget the lows that we face. And so his love is high. It is long. It is deep. And it is wide. And so... We look at this idea as we close up for our sermon this morning, that as we look at how long and wide and high and deep 
the love of God is through the different dimensions here in Psalm 113. And we can picture those different dimensions there of, of height and depth and width and length. That we can echo the prayer that Paul had for the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 3. 17b and 18 when he says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That that would be the prayer that you, that me, that we truly can grasp by being rooted and established in love. How much God truly does love you and me and us. If we caught hold of that, then we would be able to recognize that whatever season we are in, God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we would recognize whatever season we're in, if we only worship him for what he's done, then our worship could have the tendency to ebb and flow based on our circumstances. But when we worship him based on who he is and what he's done and how he loves, well, then we worship him because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We worship him with our whole hearts, and we don't just lift up our voices, but last week we talked about we lay down our lives. So this morning, as we close, this idea that we talked about who he is, what he's done, how he loves, but there's one word that's in that main point for us that we must resonate with before we leave today, and that's this idea that the reason we worship God is because we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. We've been changed by recognizing that he is transcendent and imminent and he loves us. That we've been changed by what he's done and how he's lifted us up out of the needy places and how he's made our test into testimonies. That we've been changed by the fact that his love is wide, deep, long, and high. Because we can mentally and intellectually understand those things and then not allow that to change us. And sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes the greatest distance we will experience and have to travel in our lives is the 18 inches between our heads and our hearts, what we think we know, until we actually know it. Until we actually allow it to change us. And so, when was the last time, just for you to process through this morning and this week, when was the last time you were truly changed. Richard Foster says, if worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. Isaiah 6, we see that Isaiah, he sees the throne room of God and he sees the power of who God is. And he says, woe is to me, alas, I am undone. God says, who shall I send and who will go for me? He says, here I am, send me. And then the angel comes and he taps the, Isaiah's lips with the stone and that allows him to be able to be used as God's prophet. But it's this idea that for us, if we are truly in a time of worship, then we look at him and we say, woe be unto us. We are undone because upon our own righteousness, we could not stand before God. But praise be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we may have right relationship with him, so that we can see not only that who he is as a God who's so high above us as a creator, but so imminent and intimate with us as a savior who came to this earth, that not only will we be able to see that what he's done is that he's sent his son to die for us, to live a perfect life, die a horrible death, and raise to new life, and then how he loves us is that how wide and long and deep and high that love is that lasts for eternity, that crosses the horizons, that reaches us in the heights and in the depths of our lives. And when we recognize that, when we worship like that, then we recognize that we must be changed by that. So, when was the last time you were changed 
in a time of worship? When was the last time you were changed by a song we sang? Or you were changed by a time of God's word that he spoke to you? That you were changed in the fellowship of believers in a small group or reading the Bible together? That you were changed through a time of prayer? Because that can be a signal of how recent it was that we truly had last worshipped. So when was the last time that you were changed? And, and what change might God want to make in your life today? What change might God want to make in your life today? The Westminster Catechism talks about this idea that the chief end of man what we've been created for, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So are we still asking the same questions of why do we stand, why do we sit, why do we sing, why do we clap? Because that's not why we worship. That might be the how, but it's not the why. Or has your worship been changed? Has our worship as a church, as a body of believers, as individuals coming together on a Sunday, has, has it been changed? Because we've recognized the truth that as you see in your notes, the main point is that the truth that we worship God because of we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. Because if we worship like that, if we worship like that Monday through Saturday, Sunday morning is just a culmination of what God's already doing. If we worship like that, then our people in our schools and our work, our fellow employees, the people that we interact with at coffee shops and restaurants, that our neighbors, people near us would recognize that something is different because this is not just someone who says they're a Christian, but this is someone who worships God for who he is, what he's done, and how he loves, and how radical that is, and how life-changing that is for us, but even more so for those around us that God has placed within our spheres of influence to be used as a light in a dark place on a city on a hill that cannot be hidden so they too can find the hope and the love and the life of Jesus Christ because we worship him because we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for how you love. We say these prayers all the time and we thank you for who you are, but, but God, may we have moments of, of realization and recognition of how incredible that truly is, that the word big is not big enough, and yet you still know us in our depths and every wound that we faced, every heartache, and you love us so deeply. That we would praise you for what you've done by raising us up out in our times of neediness and in types of need and that you also turn our tests into testimonies and that we would recognize how wide and long and high and deep your love is. And all of those are so beautifully revealed to us in communion. So Father, may we worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the ushers are going to start coming forward and hand out communion. And, and if you're new here, or um, rather if you're new to the Lord, you don't know if you have a relationship with God yet, don't feel pressured to take this this morning. But for those of us who love God and we've surrendered our lives to him, we take the bread that reminds us of Jesus's body that was battered, broken, bruised, and torn. And we take the cup that reminds us of his blood that was poured out and shed for our sins. And may we commune with God. May we take a few moments to just be still and to worship him 
Because who he is is a God who loves us so much that he sent his own son. What he's done is that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus here for us as an atoning sacrifice. And how he loves us is proven by that fact that we can take communion and recognize that we have a right relationship with God because of Jesus Christ alone. So feel free to partake of the bread and of the cup when you feel led as you commune with God and worship him for who he is, what he's done, and how he loves your love is deep, your love is high, your love is long, your love is wide, your love is deep, your love is high, your love is long, your love is wide. In the same way that Paul prayed over the church of Ephesus, um, this prayer uh, in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 20, I want to be able to pray this over you um, as you leave this morning. So you can just hear it, receive it, um, look at it later if you want to dive into it. But this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, and this is our prayer, my prayer for us at Palmetto Christian Church as well. It says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. We look forward to continuing this series next week. But before we leave, if you need prayer, I'll be up front. We have some friends up here that would love to be able to pray with you and for you. Um, but let us continue to be people who lead others in worship by laying down our lives and by worshiping him for who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. We'll see you all next week. And we culminate our worship together by what he's been doing throughout the week. May we do that next Sunday at 1030 service. We'll see you there. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.